Аллилуйя. Father, we confess Jesus Christ is indeed our living hope. Lord, sometimes it's easy for us to forget. It's easy to take for granted the privilege of worshiping your holy name. Lord, we as sinful, broken, fallen, decrepit, hell-deserving creatures before you changed us had no business standing in your presence, had no business taking the holy name of Christ upon our lips, had no business associating with the perfect, the pure, and the righteous. Lord, the heavens give you praise. The sun, the stars, the moon, the fixed order that you've established in creation never failed in its created purpose to honor your name. The trees of the field have dutifully given you praise since you first made them. And even the rocks cried out at the giving of your law and at the crucifixion of Jesus, the fulfillment of the law upon your command. Lord, and among those moments, and in those moments we see the obedience of creation standing at attention, worshiping and glorifying their creator. Yet we, Lord Jesus, must first be redeemed to enjoy the privilege and presence of taking your name upon our lips and standing, Lord Jesus, justified and welcomed into friendship, communion, and relationship with you. So this morning, by the work of Jesus Christ, raising us from spiritual death, establishing us, Lord, in your family, rooting and grounding us on the foundation of our hope, cleansing us by the power of his blood from the stain of sin, justifying, deeming us holy by the works of Christ. It is by that grace and by that merit and by that means we boldly say that you are worthy and we boldly enter the throne of grace through the torn flesh of our Savior Christ and offer to you praise, worship, and honor. But I pray that we would do so joyfully. We would do so realizing afresh the glory of our sins atoned for. But we'd also do so not taking for granted this incredible weighty privilege that costs the death of your Son. It's that name and that Son, Jesus Christ, we proclaim this day. And as we turn to your Word, we pray that you would open our hearts to receive and that our lives would bear its fruit as we seek to live in light of the truth that you've established. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, what a gracious privilege it is to join together in the name of Jesus Christ, to exalt, to glorify Him, and to set our attention to His Scriptures. Let us submit our mind to the authority of God's Word today as we read it together in a few moments. In Psalm 119, our passage today will be 97 through 104. The main stanza under the title, The Trial of Deceit. So this is the 13th stanza of the psalm as we continue to move through this great acrostic hymn. The aim of this morning's message is to build our confidence as the people of God by means of the quick and powerful scripture. The authoritative, quick and powerful scripture builds the confidence of the people of God and particularly we'll consider the scripture recorded in Psalm 119, 97 through 104. So with that, would you stand as you're able for the reading of God's word today? Listen as you're here in your hearing as the word of God is proclaimed. Here is the Holy Scripture. Mame 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. 
<clears throat> I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Today we turn with each verse as we remark throughout the course of our study in Psalm 119, beginning with a new letter in the Hebrew alphabet, the 13th stanza, all eight verses begin with the letter Mame. And this great acrostic psalm introduces a theme in this section, which I submit can be summarized as the sufficiency of God's word, word for the trial of deceit or the trial of deception. We see once again that the psalmist has gained confidence to face his enemies, no matter their schemes, by leaning on the law, the commandment, by establishing his heart and fixing his attention and building his confidence on the testimonies and the precepts, the word, the rules, the words and precepts of the Lord. And by my count, that is 105 references to the word of God that we are cataloging in this great psalm. The Word of God is sufficient for, this, uh, for us to stand, and in it is a great resource for us, in that the command, commandment of the Lord, for instance, in verse 98, makes us wiser than our enemies. Enemies who would do what? Well, verse 101, inflict upon us and against the Lord every evil way. Or in Psalm 104, influence us or follow in their own devices every false way. Thus, the theme of Psalm 119, the sufficiency of God's word, continues apace, telling us that the word of God is sufficient for the trial of deceit, deception, false ways. This verse or this passage also contains a rare word in the scriptures. According to my account, when I looked into interlinear, only three times does the word translated in your Translation probably, as it is here in mine, meditation, appear. It occurs once in Job 15, 14, and twice here in verses 97 through 99. The word is translated meditation, comes from the Hebrew word, sikah. This term, or this idea, this notion or teaching of meditation is popular today, and therefore I think it's helpful to distinguish what the Bible means when it uses this idea Pagans, false religious people, or false religions these days, it's popular to throw around the term meditation. However, when we look at the scriptures, they provide for us a biblical context, and they highlight for us what the scriptures mean and what is the intent of the psalmist when he expresses his desire and adjures us, the reader, to join him in meditating on God's word. Strong's Concordance associates Sikah, with reflection, devotion, and prayer. And while biblical meditation and the attitude of the psalmist is certainly characterized by these spiritual disciplines, reflection, devotion, and prayer, perhaps we get a fuller sense of, the biblical, of biblical meditation when we glean the context of the whole psalm. 
A fuller sense of biblical meditation, I submit, is gleaned from the form and context of all of Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is structured to illustrate and reinforce the proper orientation of a reader or of a believer toward God's Word or divine revelation. Think about it. This psalm in its length, longest of all the biblical chapters, certainly the longest of all the songs in Scripture, and its recurring parallelisms, even as we're charting now up to 107 repetitions of different phrases that provide more shades of understanding as to God's precepts and word and law, in short, His covenant revelation. The structure of this psalm in its recurring parallelisms, its detail, its acrostic order, all these things presuppose a disciplined and a delighted singer. For the, for Christian, or for the Christian, meditation is not suspending one's God-given reasoning faculties to place him in a suggestible spiritual state. That's what a lot of people think of when they hear that term meditation. Placing, suspending your ordinary reasoning capacity or mental faculties in order to place you in a spiritually suggestible state. No, that's not what the psalmist means by meditation. Rather, it is a disciplined and a delighted attentiveness to the covenant revelation of God. A disciplined and a delight to pursue with one's attention and one's faculties, reasoning and, and obedience and otherwise, the covenant revelation of God. Think of those two words, discipline and delight. And they summarize, I suggest, the author's attitude to the Word of God. The Word of God, in its superior authority, sufficiency, and perfection, commands a singular devotion. The Word of God, the, what's the appropriate attitude and heart toward it? Well, certainly delight and certainly discipline. The psalmist models this discipline and delightedness in this great psalm as we surpass a hundred references to God's self-disclosure of His righteousness, His holiness, and truth. And as we follow the author's train of thought and passion for the Scriptures, it is my prayer today that even in this message we might in some part grow in our own desire, our own affections for the inerrant, infallible, sufficient, and eternal Word of God. So let me give you a heading for, to consider this passage this morning. The heading is this, the Word of God or covenant revelation, two terms I've been using to describe the revealed, the revelation of God. So the Word of God or covenant revelation is key to superior devotion, number one, superior dominion, number two, superior direction, number three, and finally, superior desire. So that will be the outline of our message today. First of all, the Word of God, or covenant revelation, is key to superior devotion. Have you ever heard someone say, boy, I admire the commitment or the conviction of this or that people group or religious idea or identity or institution or something of that nature? You know, there are people who knock on your door and they are cultists and they proclaim their understanding of some religious idea and they seek to gain their works, uh, based on works righteousness, favor with the Lord by duty to their door-to-door evangelism. Jehovah's Witnesses come to mind or something of the nature. Or some might say, well, the devotion of uh, religious groups like Islam is notable. And, I, I, and you might even hear people say, oh, their sincere, sincerity is really to be lauded. 
But I suggest to you that just like faith is justified by its object, in other words, what is legitimate faith? It's not judged by sincerity, but that which you have faith in, so it is with devotion. One can be devoted to something sinful and, God ha- and, and something that God hates, and that devotion is nothing but false idol worship and blasphemy. Devotion is justified by its object. Yes, all men are created to be worshipers, created everyone, every individual is is created to be dedicated, to be committed, to be consumed, to be uh, passionately pursuing something. And in our sin, that's usually ourself, and then it takes different forms and the things that we happen to be interested at any given time. We are a devoted people. But what Psalm 119 and all of the scriptures say to us is the only true, legitimate, sincere, and laudable devotion is that which focuses its attention, its direction, and its ambition upon the Lord, upon Him. And Psalm 119 And our section today is no exception in proclaiming this truth. Notice verse 97, the first of the main portion. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. This is sort of an individual expression of what Israel did corporately when they repented, reformed, and returned to the Word of God as a society during the reforms of Nehemiah's day. They took a quarter of the day and stood for the reading of God's word, a quarter of the day to worship him as well. And as this glorious worship service unfolded, the the repentance of the people on behalf of the generations even before them and the reordering of their whole society and uh, and their community around what is to be first and foremost, the Lord, his word, Yahweh and his law compelled the people's attention. What were they doing? They're expressing a devotion to the Lord, a love for His law. They were echoing in that corporate event the heart of the individual who wrote Psalm 119. It is my meditation, that is your word, my meditation, your law, all the day. This is the kind of, the, kind of devotion, superior devotion, laudable devotion, devotion, commendable devotion that the psalmist extols and endorses. Now, in Deuteronomy 17, which I've referenced several times through the course of Psalm 119, the king is commanded, an anointed civil magistrate, in the context of of God's order of the day, to write down the law of God, a certified copy by his own hand that the priest would sign off on, to demonstrate that he, because he presumed to rule on behalf of others and his decisions would affect the whole community, loved the Lord's law and had made it his meditation day and night. So I suggest as we work towards a reformation in our land, pushing back wickedness and insisting on on the Lord returning to first and foremost and central to the organization of our nation, that perhaps in the future, as we move toward this end, we not only require that civil magistrates write a certified copy of the law of God in their own hand, but perhaps we might want to consider adding to that that in order to serve in political office, how about memorizing all of Psalm 119? Oh, that sounds extreme, the world would say. You Christian fundamentalist, how does that make you any different from the Taliban or something of that nature? What, you want to bring religion into politics? Absolutely. All politics is religion. It's just a matter of what moral order, higher authority, and superior values one organizes themselves around. 
And I'm telling you, the law of God is the standard whereby all social order, all law, and all king's intentions are to be judged. You could trust a king who would rule according to Psalm 119. You can't trust a king who rules according, or let's just say a president, put it in modern context, according to the values of our day. Why? Because he does not love the law of God. Joe Biden does not meditate all the day on the Lord's precepts, his commandments, his testimonies. You know how I know? Because when he gets up and advocates for his policies and his administration, he does so on the women fancy of sinful, rebellious modern man who has thrown aside the categories of God's forever prescribed moral order and exchanged them for the cause du jour of the day, homosexuality and gross tolerance of every kind of perversion and promoting indiscriminate foreign conflict wars as if we could balance the pillars of the universe and this world with the means at our disposal, trusting in chariots and horses and not trusting in the name of the Lord our God. There are two kings in Scripture that illustrate both the negative and positive. The first, I suggest, despised, despises everything of Psalm 119, and that would be King Ahaz. Let's turn there for an example application to the negative, illustrating by contrast his rule. And then let's follow that up with a king who heeded Psalm 119, if you will, in 2 Kings 22, 8-12. First of all, what of Ahaz? So turn with me to 2 Chronicles 28 as you're able. As you recall, the history of Israel was riddled with all kinds of examples of mostly wickedness, but also righteousness. When God would raise up a righteous judge or a king to rule in his stead on behalf of the people, Ahaz was not like that. He was a wicked example. And as we find his account in Scripture, we see the consequences of his reign, not taking seriously the word of God. It would have done him well and his nation well, if he had had the heart of the author of Psalm 119. Listen to 2 Chronicles 28, beginning in verse 22. In the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord, this same King Ahaz, for he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that had defeated him and said, Because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. You follow the logic of this wicked man, King Ahaz? He, seems, he sees some success of the gods and the false ideas and the pagan worship of those around him. Even he had experienced the judgment of wicked enemies of God and enemies of God's people. And so he says, well, it stands to reason that their gods are more powerful than ours. So I'll worship them, see how it works out. How did it work out? Verse 24, And Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of the Lord, and cut in pieces the vessels of the house of God. And he shut up the doors of the house of the Lord, and he made himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem and every city of Judah. He made high places to, to make offerings to other gods, provoking to anger the Lord, the God of his fathers. Now the rest of his acts and all his ways from first to last, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And Ahaz slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city in Jerusalem, for they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel, and Hezekiah his son reigned in his place. You know, a king has a lot of authority and responsibility. So do you, if you're a parent, let's say, in this room. You have the responsibility and authority of shaping the consciousness and the spiritual makeup and the physical well-being of your children, let's say. And so for one who has a responsibility to affect the very souls of precious and invaluable human beings made in the image of God, does it not stand to reason that there is a high degree of accountability 
before the maker and creator and establish, establisher of law and truth. And so we should serve him with fear when we presume to parent. Is it not the same for a king? You know, by one unjust law or edict or one declared war and women fancy, thousands could be sent to their death. And for a king to not take Psalm 119 seriously may, may mean that he is guilty of the sin of murder to, to the tune of thousands and thousands and thousands. Because war is not justified based on American interest, it's justified based on the righteousness that God lays forth in his law. So this is why I propose that we hold ourselves and kings accountable to God's word. We see throughout scripture the consequences of not taking these things seriously. Now today, even in the church, uh, so-called church, people are given over to the idols of the day. If you can't beat them, join them, was the philosophy of Ahaz. And there are many in our nation who are displaying that same kind of rebellious heart and attitude. This is the cultural pressure that comes in any wicked age when God's judgment has allowed wickedness to endure in, among a people for any given period of time. It's the spirit of the age. It's the popular notions. It's the popular values and virtues that the false gods of the day demand and the worship that they command. Yesterday, a few of us were downtown in Brainerd because we heard originally it was billed as an all-ages event. Drag queen show was going to be going on in Eagles Club. And uh, later, because as we understand it, because of some online pushback, they raised the age to 16. Nevertheless, Pastor Eric from, or from uh, LifeSpring and myself here from Providence, we took a few people with us and decided that we would preach the gospel, call people to repentance, and take a stand in our community for the sake of righteousness. And so we did so. But we were opposed by most everybody there, as you might imagine, and they yelled insults our direction and said we were hateful and unloving. And of course, as I engaged with them one-on-one -on -one and others did as well, we asked them what standards they were using to declare us unloving. We told them that it's, it's not loving that anyone should hurt themselves and least of all their soul. And if you embrace the wickedness and the perversion that God says is worthy of judgment, you're doing your soul a great disservice. You could find yourself a victim of God's judgment and end up in hell one day. But there's hope in Jesus Christ. Turn to him. Turn to the loving Messiah and Savior Jesus. This is essentially our message. A woman who claimed to be a pastor said, I'm a pastor too, she yells at me. We are supposed to love everybody. We, are, we should love everybody. How dare you be so hateful? And then she proceeded to raise the middle finger and take one of our gospel tracts and throw it across the parking lot. I guess this is the way she was expressing her standard of love for us. <laughs> Seems a little self-contradictory, does it not? Why is this woman there affirming and supporting this kind of wickedness and perversion? It's the same as the heart of Ahaz. The false gods seem to have some sort of power and authority and compel the interests of the culture, so if you can't beat them, join them. And so this false idea of tolerance and virtue has crept its way into the ostensible or confessing church. And this is the situation we find ourselves in. Having to defend our own small, conservative, rural communities from inroads of the pagan evangelists wanting to normalize sexual perversion among the young people and the citizens of this area. And you know, it feels, you feel really awkward and out of place and tensions run really high. And it's not the easiest thing to take a stand when you're a pitiful minority by man's accounting. However, saints, we have the obligation, I feel the pressure of this as a minister of the gospel, to announce what Psalm 119 and all of the scriptures tell us. That if we don't turn from our wickedness, 
God's long suffering has limitations and his judgment will come and our nation stands ripe for judgment and unworthy of whole scale destruction. And it is only his long suffering and mercy that prevents that from happening. And why does he do so? We've learned from the rest of the scriptures that someone might come to Christ, that in his patience, long suffering and forbearance, perhaps another soul would come. So we proclaim the word of God. That's the way to use his patience. Stewardship of his patience requires that we announce that there's salvation in Jesus Christ. So that's a negative example in our experience last night, as well as a king in scripture who did not heed the heart of Psalm 119. Let's go to a positive one. This is 2 Kings chapter 22. Don't you love this story? This is when the law of God was found in the days of King Josiah. Just a phenomenal account. Josiah, I believe, only eight years old when he took the throne, but God's favor and his grace was upon him. And though his nation was pretty far gone in its wickedness, nevertheless, God had grace for a period of time. But that grace was not based on nothing. There were certain things that God moved by his sovereign hand in the heart of the king and the people. Let me pick up on this in 2 Kings 22.8. Hilkiah, the high priest, said to <coughs> Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. Praise the Lord. You know, for a nation starving for lack of the Word of God. And our nation is starving for lack of the Word of God. Not its physical copy, but taking it seriously in the heart and fearing the Lord. Like recently preaching from Genesis chapter 38, where we find that fear of God and commitment to marriage are two measures whereby a social health can be identified and measured. And by those standards, we fall so woefully short. There's a famine for the word of God in the fear of the people and in the consciousness of the society in which we live. And we need the eyes of the blind and our own hearts to be stirred and opened to the value. And when we rediscover the authority of God's word to share this experience in our hearts, that was quite a physical reality in the days of Josiah. Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have oversight on the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book and Shaphan read it before the king. Verse 11, when the king heard the words of this book of the law, he tore his clothes. Why? Kids, remind us, why did people tear their clothes in the scriptures? Because they were very, very... Sad? That could be a reason. Oh, that could be a reason. Upset, right? Could be angry, but generally speaking, upset. Why is the king upset that the law of God has been found? Because he recognizes by the standard, by the precepts, law, testimonies, by the word and the precepts of the Lord. I haven't said that one already. Those words that Psalm 119 uh, delivers that they fall so far short that there is no escaping his judgment but by the mercy of God. The king commanded Hilkiah, verse 12, the priest, and Ahikim, the son of Shaphan, and Akbor, the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan, the secretary, and Isaiah, the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that he has written concerning us. 
You see, by those two examples, the response to God's word could not be more stark, the difference between the two. In the case of Ahaz, he so despised the Lord that he joined his enemies in worshiping wicked things. But in the case of Josiah, when the word of God was brought to his attention, he realized that he and his whole nation fell short of the standards, and he repented. And God had patience and relented of his judgment, at least for a time. As a result of Josiah, in his sphere of influence, loving the law of God and returning to it and the people's attention to it as their meditation all the day. And this is the kind of devotion that Psalm 119 says, the law of God, the word of God commands. And if anyone gives anything short of that, it's not because of deficiency in the word of the Lord. It's because of a deficiency in us. And only a blasphemer would say otherwise. Verse 98. The word of God, his covenant revelation is key to superior dominion. That is a place of stability, a strong foundation, in spite of those who would seek to shake us. Verse 98, your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies. And notice there's three threats here in these three verses that the word of God proves sufficient for the author to stand against. The first is enemies. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. And then verse 99, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. Then number three, I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. Now, there is a sense that you could read this passage and say that the author is illustrating the superior knowledge of the law of God. But I suggest to you he goes further, that those who are his enemies actively oppose the commandment of the Lord. And I think he recognizes as well that there are many teachers who teach in violation of the testimonies that are worthy of his meditation. And even in his culture, there are many of the aged who fail to keep his precepts. So when you look at each one of these, they would seem a really intimidating threat on the face of it, I'm sure. Nevertheless, the word of God is key to superior foundation and dominion, if you will, in spite of number one, tyrants. Now you could look at these verses and perhaps derive three appeals to false authority. And the first is appeal to power. My enemies appealing to their power, their ability to coerce and compel me, make me want to recant my faith or follow their ways or turn from the worship and service and faithfulness to Yahweh to whatever they would prefer. This, is this not what Daniel and his three friends faced or Joseph and his many troubles? And when they stood, just as three young men or one young man in the case of Joseph, on the law of the Lord against their enemies. It wasn't that they didn't suffer, but even through their suffering, God advanced and promoted them, and they proved to have strong footing underneath them, would take an incredible step of faith. But did we not see a fourth one in the fire? And the fourth looked like the son of the gods. Even the unbeliever testifies to the active presence of the Holy Spirit, preserving the confession of three exiled sons of Judah in a land absolutely suffocating with paganism and wickedness and the culture of the day. But they said no when they were commanded and the music played. They refused to bow down to a false idol. And the world, even the king, saw in this instance of the Lord intervening on behalf of his own 
that he ruled under the pleasure of a more superior power still. And this was the testimony and story at the time. And God may be pleased to raise up that same testimony again. Nevertheless, we know what the right thing is to do. Whether or not I live or die, that is up to the Lord. But I will not bow down to the image that you have set up, O King. May that be our commitment. Because the Lord's commandments makes us wiser than our enemies, for it is ever with me. Do you notice the source of confidence that the author draws from the commandments of the Lord? He understands that no matter the nature of his enemies, whatever form of coercion they may use, like a fiery furnace, imprisonment, persecution, or otherwise or worse, that you cannot tear out of the heart of a believer his commitment to the Lord his God. And the testimony and the faithfulness of the church under eras of extreme pressure from the outside culture and wicked governments has proven this over and over and over again. My commandment or your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies and it is ever with me. You cannot tear the commandment of my God out of my heart no matter what kind of war you wage on Christ and his church. Ultimately, the solidity of the transformation of our heart in Christ will be the gates that, uh, that or will be the advancement of the kingdom against which the gates of hell cannot prevail against. There is superior dominion against tyrants who appeal to power for those who stand on the commandments of the Lord. But there is also superior dominion in spite of teachers. And let's just make the application by appeal to technical knowledge or expertise. In spite of expertise and uh, those who, with their understanding and their scholarly uh, influence, might intimidate us into uh, being deceived, the author of Psalm 119 knows that the testimonies of the Lord, when they are his meditation, will prevent, protect him against the coercion and manipulation of the expert class of his day. He has, because of the testimonies of the Lord, more understanding than all his teachers. You know, it was the so-called public health experts that compel or commanded or tried to coerce in many Western nations, to some degree including our own, the church, not to gather in the name of Jesus because they deemed quarantining and separating oneself from one's neighbor for fear of a global pandemic was a greater priority than the worship of Jesus Christ in the corporate gathered assembly. And while we left it up to the wisdom of the individual, there's obviously things to take into consideration in a legitimate plague. Nevertheless, we determined that we had a different set of priorities than the public health class of expertise in our own land. And so as a small an unassuming church with many others, we took a stand and said, no, we will worship the Lord. Though he slay me, our forebears said, we will serve him. And though it might cost us our life, nevertheless, it is the call to be faithful to his command. Our spiritual health is more important than our physical well-being. What would it profit us to weather a pandemic and lose our soul? Let us only worship Jesus Christ. But what gives a small and unassuming number of people, if that's a good application, grace and confidence to stand when the expert class deem us fools? Well, it is confidence in the testimonies of the Lord. And that confidence comes by meditation. Remember what we're working with for a definition of meditation. It's a disciplined and delighted attentiveness 
to the covenant revelation of God. When we read the word of God and that voice comes through in our consciousness with more authority than a Dr. Fauci, then we have in our confidence, or, or when, then we have embraced the heart and attitude of the testimonies or of the meditation of the author of Psalm 119, realizing that the testimonies of the Lord are to be trusted and they are the very thing whereby the testimonies of anyone else, even those who presume to be teachers or experts, ought to be measured. Without time to turn there, two great examples that illustrate this are Jesus himself and Timothy. Paul commends Timothy as being a student that has surpassed his own teachers. And how is he able to do so? 2 Timothy 3, 13 through 17. Well, he did so by clinging to the testimonies and precepts of the word of the Lord, with delight and devotion, applying himself to the scriptures as they were taught and revealed to him, taking them seriously. Jesus, the preeminent example of one who, in spite of the experts, nevertheless was on stronger footing in Luke 2, 40 through 52, we referenced this recently, excelled all the teachers of the law and the learned men at the age of 12 as he proclaimed, as the word made flesh, authoritatively, the testimonies of the Lord. And there is no one who will ever reach that standard of meditation, Jesus, as touching his humanity on the law of God. We have him to look to as the standard of righteousness to internalize and embody the word of the Lord. Jesus is perfect in this regard. So we look to him for confidence. Think of the confidence that Jesus exuded in his ministry. Was Jesus ever intimidated by a tyrant? There were a lot of them that faced him. He would walk right through crowds that wanted to kill them, knowing with full confidence that it wasn't his time. When there was a conspiracy to take his life and to betray him into the hands of sinners, he said, go ahead, Judas, do your thing. Actually directing him. And Judas, what did he do? He submitted to the authority of a sovereign God and went forward with the purposes that God in his decree had prepared beforehand that his son might be slaughtered on behalf of sinners. Was Jesus a victim of Judas? No, Judas was compelled to submit to the ultimate word of God. When Jesus stood before Pilate, do you think he was intimidated? He said, you would have no power against me unless it was granted to you by my Father who is in heaven. Would Jesus be shaking in his boots by the next piece of legislation that the wicked men of our day seek to pass to curb the uh, civil liberties or the freedom of religious expression for Christians in America? No. He would rise up with authority and proclaim that judgment is coming if the magistrates did not remove that piece of legislation and repent. When the experts' class of Jesus' day sought to trip him up in his words, was he intimidated? No. He turned their words around and showed them that they were wicked sinners and stood in need of repentance. When those who were Pharisees and Sadducees sought in their hypocrisy to condemn the word made flesh. And now we don't stand with the same authority of Jesus, of course, but what we do have is a sharp two-edged sword in our mouth and in our hand. And if we go forth representing God's word, we are ambassadors on behalf of a sovereign savior whose word will not return void and is powerful, effective, and sufficient. So we, by these means, can draw great encouragement to face our enemies today whether they come by the form of state coercion or the false testimonies of the expert class or those uh, in the third category among the aged. And in an honor culture, you could look at the aged as sort of the gatekeepers of culture. You know, they were the ones who kind of stood for the traditions and they were the ones who had some authority and so forth. 
And of course, in a godly society, you look to the aged, you know, for their wisdom and their life experience. But in an ungodly society, age is no substitute for righteousness. And the psalmist recognizes this. You don't look to the quote-unquote lived experience of someone to carry any authority and weight unless that lived experience is in light and according to the precepts of our God. Third point this morning, the word of the Lord, the word of God is key to superior devotion, dominion, and number three, direction. 101 and 102, direction language. I hold my feet, verse 101, I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. 102, I do not turn aside from your rules for you have taught me. This is a recurring metaphor in scripture, a walk or a journey to describe the Christian life. And we've remarked how Psalm 119 is itself kind of a journey. The psalmist seems to be progressing in his spiritual maturity through a number of trials as we've documented them along the way. But he trusts the word and the rules of the Lord to keep his feet on the right path, to steer him clear from every evil way. In this way, the word of God directs our attention. It keeps us from being distracted by the things that glitter and that are advertised as hope for the weary soul or the things that pagan man and his unbelief holds out as our temporal salvation. Someone who is devoted to the Lord and his word holds their attention will have discernment to recognize false prophets, will have discernment to recognize deceptive means and all of these things that vie for our attention. When we pay attention to the word of God and his rules, he will, it will grant us grace to hold our feet back from every evil way. So the word of God in this way directs our attention. Now, this is expanded even in the next uh, stanza. In verse 105, the psalmist goes on to, in this very familiar verse, to poetically illustrate this metaphor of walking compared to the Christian life, or to illustrate the Christian life. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The Word of God as a lamp and light, an instrument for direction, sets our feet and path accordingly. And so in this picture, we see that the Word of God is key to superior direction, directing our attention and devotion to the Lord, holding back our feet from pursuing the evil way. And not only directing our attention, but holding our attention. You know, sometimes it's easy, based on the novelty of the new, to be excited about a new turn in our lives, we might identify with Christianity and, you know, the novelty of the new holds our attention for a time. But the true test of faith, of course, is perseverance. And so where do we gain the confidence that we will stand over the tests that come our way? The psalmist says in verse 102, I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. So the rules of the Lord, when they are the source and the object of our meditation, our discipline and our delight, they will yield fruit of endurance and perseverance for us. Now, he says in this verse 102 that this will protect and prevent from turning aside. And I couldn't help but think about Genesis 38, which documents the depravity of the family of Judah we covered recently. But notice how the wickedness of Judah's family, the turning point that ushers in all of this perversion, 38.1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers 
and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. So that language is on purpose. It's intentional. Judah turned aside. That's the same language in Psalm 119, 102. What Judah was doing by this account is he was not paying attention to the rules of the Lord, but he was turning aside, directing his attention to other influences of the day. In his, Can in his case, it was the Canaanites, the wicked peoples around him that became a thorn in his side. And after a marriage that ended in death and the birth of four children, that ended up in more tragedy. It took the birth of twins by incest by his daughter-in-law and a call to repentance before Judah was set back according to the rules of the Lord. But if he had kept them in the first place, if the grace had been upon Judah to have that repentance and awakening in his heart, then there would have been means, sufficient grace, and the law of the Lord guiding him, his word and his rules beside him, so that he wouldn't so, so as not to turn aside to following the influence of the Canaanites, the Adulamites, and so forth. So let's close with one more point this morning. The Word of God, covenant revelation, is key to superior devotion, dominion, direction, and finally, desire. The final two verses, 103 and 104, speak to our appetites, the things that compel our affections. How sweet are your words to my taste! Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. So here, by using these metaphors of desire, the sweetness of honey, and hating the false way, the author speaks to our spiritual affections or appetites. And he presumes a dichotomy or a ranging from that which you love to that which you hate. So, um, kids, what's a food that you love, absolutely love, your favorite food? Shout it out. If you have a favorite food, kids. Pasta. Pasta. Love it. Anybody else? Pizza. Pizza. Very good. How about a food that you... Spaghetti. Spaghetti. Yeah, very good. Have you on the carbs today? Papaya. Yes. Oh, papaya. So good. Especially dried. There's some real sweetness in that, is there not? How about a food that you hate? Does anybody have something that they really despise and that they hate? Nice cucumbers, mushrooms, cabbage, yeah. Uh, yeah, so we uh, kind of onions, heavy on the vegetable category. Very good. Well, the young people, can uh, they have the life experience to understand the metaphor here. Just as in our taste buds, there's a range of stuff that we love to the stuff that we hate. Generally speaking, sweetness usually measures higher on the category. We're sour or tart or, you know, whatever. And still, until our uh, palate and conviction of health might catch up to us, range is lower. So it is with spiritual things. And the key is what our appetite is trained for. Do the things that we love and are sweet to our taste, are they the words and the precepts, the rules, the word, and the testimonies of the Lord? What we see here is opportunity in the scriptures for a spiritual appetite self-assessment. What are our spiritual appetites? What do we crave? Think of the story, ironically, it uses sweets and the law of God in the same story. And this is the story of Samson, which really directly illustrates this concept. In Judges 14, 8 through 9, do you guys remember, kids, what Samson found in the carcass of a lion? He's walking by the road, dead lion, 
and some bees swarming around. Yes, in the back. So honey, that is correct. And so did Samson pass by the honey or did he harvest it from the carcass? He harvested that honey and as he was eating it, he thought of a riddle that he might trick his Philistine um, you know, attendees to his wedding with. Out of the strong came something sweet. Out of the eater came something to eat. So at first it kind of reads like a clever Aesop's fable type story. But the scriptures are to be read in light of their context. What does the law of God say about a dead animal? In interest of maintaining that ceremonial distinctiveness and holiness, it was against God's law to touch anything dead, right? So what is sweeter to you, honey or the law of God? What is sweeter to you? Now for Samson, honey in that instance was sweeter to him than the law of God. The desire of something that tasted good overrode his desire to be faithful and obedient to the word of the Lord. And this illustrates the issue here. Where are our affections and where do they rest? How sweet are the words of the Lord to us? There's other illustrations like this in the Bible. The prophet has offered a scroll. I think in the case of Ezekiel in a dream, and I, that words were found, I did eat them. They were sweet to my taste. And there's this uh, association with that which tastes good to our physical appetites to illustrate the kind of desire that we are to have to the word of God. And let me tell you, last night on the street, when we were proclaiming the word of God, do you think it sounded sweet in the ears of those who were there to celebrate and affirm the perversion that is, you know, epitomized in this drag show? Of course not. What did they need? They needed new taste buds. They need, like all of us do in our sin, a radical transformation. We all come to God as enemies, loving ourselves and our sin and are ordered according to the flesh. Let's not be hypocrites and say, I would have passed by that carcass. No, in some way, every one of us has fallen short. We've loved ourselves and our appetites and the flesh more than we've loved the law of God. And this is why Jesus had to die. Because the consequences of this kind of sin are worthy of death, as God proclaimed from the very beginning. Jesus died for a sinner like Samson and sinners like those who were gathered for that show last night, sinners like you and me. One of the evidences that the Spirit is working in our hearts is that He changes those cravings. What do we crave? If you begin to crave more of the fellowship of the saints and look forward to Sunday morning, that's a good sign. Perhaps the sweetness of the Word of God and the fellowship of the Beloved is growing in your affections. If you look forward to those times when you can put aside distractions and open the Word and get that kind of spark of understanding which is so exhilarating when you find those treasures within the scripture in your own study or family worship time. And that's a good sign as well. The Spirit is working in you. I trust that His words become sweeter to you. And thus the desire, superior desires, the Word of God is key to changing these as well. What do we crave? What do we despise? The author of Psalm 119, influenced by the Spirit of God, craved the Word of the Lord. Yet every false way he hated, he despised. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. We need some good, holy, sanctified loathing in our day. I suggest to you, you know, there's a twofold admonition that we can draw from Psalm 119 to love the sweetness of God's word, but also to loathe and to hate the transgression 
or the belittling of it or the blasphemy of the same. And of course, we're careful to distinguish that from the individual. You don't need a loathing of individuals per se as much as we need a loathing of the debauchery and the blasphemy and the deceit that is so prevalent in our age. This is what appetites uh, for those who are trained by the Word of God begin to display. And as we, saints, if you are a believer in this room, pray for the kingdom and the will of Jesus Christ to be manifest in our time and in our communities. We can rest assured that the Word of God is sufficient even for the trial of deception. Sufficient not only to give us confidence to stand against these things, but sufficient to change our own desires so our heart truly craves the Word of God and we set aside and begin to loathe those things that God has said is worthy of His condemnation and judgment. In the sound of this message today, you may not know the Lord. You may not relate to the psalmist who has such a devotion to the Word of God that he sings about it, and this the greatest, longest song in all of Scripture, I submit. Do you, is it hard to imagine sitting there and writing page after page of the loveliness of the testimonies, the precepts, the word and the rules on the, of the Lord? If the Lord has not given you a desire for him, that is a good sign that you don't know him yet. So I beg of you to turn from your sin and repent and ask that God would change your heart. We are born in our sin with hearts of stone. But as God changes those to hearts of flesh, the price of his son dying in our place, we begin to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, loving what he loves, loathing what he loathes. So let's pray two things as we close this message, that the lost in the hearing of his word by this means or any other would repent and turn to him as their hope and their help, and that we would grow in our sanctification to love him all the more. Dear Jesus, we thank you for your long-suffering and kindness towards us. Though we deserved to be condemned eternally for our transgression of your holy law, you have changed us. This is not due to ourselves, but a work of the Spirit that has transformed our hearts to cry out for salvation. That first desire to be saved and that first cry of faith recognizing that only Christ's blood is sufficient to wash away the stain and guilt of sin. If there are any in the hearing of this message who have not turned to you, dear Jesus, as their Savior, the Messiah, and their Lord, I pray that the first desire they would feel by a sovereign work of your Holy Spirit is a loathing for their sin and a love for their Savior, Jesus Christ. And for the rest of us who have confessed their sin and are counted among the beloved, I pray that the proclamation of your word and our dedication to it day to day, our times of family worship, Lord, our thoughts and meditations throughout the day would, be in, would increase in their delight and their discipline that we might be sanctified, transformed more each day into the image of our lovely and awesomely powerful Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.